3: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
0: Churchill, the Great Orator. A Telegraph podcast in association with Universal Pictures' Darkest Hour. Episode 2. We shall fight on the beaches. Churchill understood and wielded the power of words. He loved the ebb and flow of narrative and in his speeches portrayed the dramatic events he had witnessed and had often been part of. You must remember, he said, that I have always earned my living by my pen and by my tongue. Churchill could write amid the storm of the battlefield and in the calm of his study and speak in the cut and thrust of vigorous public and parliamentary debate. Words were his most persuasive weapon.
4: Um, I can't tell you exactly in which order or exactly where I was, but I think it was the speeches that kept the whole of the population together, really. Hello, I'm Joy Hunter, and I worked in the underground war rooms till the end of the war, and I was a shorthand typist. There was a lot of dissension at the top, and of course we were in dire distress, threatening to be invaded for years on end, uh, worried about the convoys, and then fighting on so many different areas of the world. And if you, you saw the results and how people were against it, and how I, I think it was Halifax and a number of other people wanted to surrender, give in and say, we can't do this, because people seem to forget we really hadn't got over the First World War. You know, there'd been the Depression and the soldiers who'd been wounded were never looked after, begging on the streets. So I, th- I think, I'm sure, in fact, that he played the major role, despite all the bravery of other people, because he inspired the civilians. Looking back, I'm quite sure, I mean, these speeches still make my back shiver because they were were what was needed.
5: Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years if necessary, alone.
2: This is Harold Nicholson, and he writes on the 5th of November 1940 in his diary, if Chamberlain had spoken glum words such as these, the impression would have been one of despair and lack of confidence. Churchill can say them, and we all feel, thank God that we have a man like that. My name's Harry de Ketville. I'm the comment editor at
6: the Daily Telegraph and I'm here today with James Taylor, the curator of the Churchill War Rooms on the very edge of St James's Park. Here on the surface it's pigeons and walkers among the green and the lake but we're about to plunge beneath the surface which will take us into a particularly subterranean world of darkness
2: and cramped headroom. It's only one floor below ground Um, this is not a kind of deep bunker that you might kind of expect Britain's Prime Minister to have. When he first comes down here in May 1940, this is where he said, this is the room from which I shall direct the war. In this, the second episode of our series,
6: I want to look at perhaps his most striking and memorable war speech, On the Beaches, which was delivered at the House of Commons on the 9th of June 1940, where the state of war is illuminated so honestly in Churchill's words. On the Beaches is seen as the turning point in not only moving closer to winning the war, but to winning the affections of his newly formed cabinet and, most importantly, the British people. We heard from the late Martin Gilbert at the very start of this episode, where he declares words were his most persuasive weapon. Let's go down those short steps into what was the throbbing heart of the operation against the Nazis, the bunker where Churchill led the campaign against Germany. We've now come into perhaps the most intimate space in the war rooms. It's Churchill's private bedroom. There's a single bed here with an eider-down on top of it, a small heater, a chamber pot underneath the bed. And I look at this rather narrow, straight, single bed with its austere headboard and this large leather-covered desk with blotters and notebooks and maps and this microphone. And I'm wondering... What kind of solitude? Can you put yourself in the mind of the man? How lonely as well it must have been, sitting in that chair.
2: Lonely, yes, but I think the thing is that becoming prime minister was the pinnacle of his ambition. Churchill has an enormous sense of responsibility.
6: And it's extraordinary, isn't it, that relationship between the intimate, the private, the personal. This is the place he would have sat, slept, eaten his breakfast and then the place where he also had a lifeline to the world where he told the British people the course of the
2: war. He's very sincere and very straightforward with what he's saying. He's not delivering false promise, but he is giving hope. I think that by and large, he'd met the public mood. There's a resignation and a realization that Hitler cannot be negotiated with.
7: Well now, Germans are oh, dive bombing a convoy out into the sea. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven German dive bombers, Junkers 87s. There's one going down on his target now. Bomb. No, missed the ships. He hasn't hit a single ship. There are about ten ships in the convoy, but he hasn't hit a single one. There, you can hear our aircraft going at them now. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, there are about ten German machines dive bombing the British convoy, which is just out to sea in the Channel. I can't see anything. No, we thought he got a German one at had been got then, but now the British...
8: I'm Nicholas James. I'm the Member of Parliament for Mid-Sussex. He did realise that you were not going to get anywhere without pretty much telling them the truth. He could never tell them the whole truth, but he did, in those speeches, he did prepare the country. I mean, we would be so much better off today as a nation, if instead of the whole thing being run by a lot of infantile special advisers, the speeches of politicians on the great issues really did level with the public. The world now assumes that my grandfather virtually controlled the House of Commons the whole of the time that he was a member of Parliament. I mean, it wasn't until the speech uh, that we will fight in the battle, we will fight on the landing grounds. It really shows the moment that the House of Commons actually understood that my grandfather was right.
5: This struggle was protracted and fierce. Suddenly, the scene had cleared. The crash and thunder answered for the moment, but only for the moment, died away. A miracle of deliverance achieved by valour, by perseverance, by perfect discipline, by faultless service, by resource, by skill, by unconquerable fidelity, is manifest to us all. The enemy was hurled back by the retreating British troops. He was so roughly handled that he did not harry their departure seriously. Sir, we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance ...the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuation. But there was a victory inside this... You require
6: the great performance of an actor. I'm going to try and read a little passage here... ...where he... ...these rolling lists of language. He says in one sentence... ...the miracle of deliverance... ...achieved by valour... ...by perseverance... ...by perfect discipline... ...by faultless service... ...by resource... ...by skill... ...by unconquerable fidelity... ...is manifest to us all... Now, you have to take a deep breath before you say yes. that. You have to fill your lungs yes. just to get through that. But it must have created this unstoppable momentum in the
2: house when he was telling his MPs about it. Always outlining the serious of the situation, but reassuring people with the, we'll get through it together. That mercurial power that somehow is so hard to diagnose and
6: characterise that he's just got it. So these speeches are him meeting the British public in the middle?
4: He actually didn't pull any punches, and he didn't hide things, he didn't cover things up. I mean, obviously, certain things had to be covered when you're running a war. You can't let everybody know all the secrets. But he, he rallied the troops, really, if you use an old-fashioned phrase. You know, when people were down and depressed, they'd turn on the jolly old wireless and listen to Churchill. And then you sort of felt better. He managed somehow, even over the air to convey a feeling of, of um, compassion for the people who had been hurt, but also a feeling of, of um, you know, get up and go.
1: He, was, he wasn't a, a sort of a saint or an angel. Um, he could be sort of very obstreperous and difficult and not particularly understanding of other people's difficulties. My name is Richard Toy and I'm Professor of Modern History at the University of Exeter and author of three books on Winston Churchill. Um, at the same time, I don't think that he was you know, sort of laid low by depression at this, at this stage. He was incredibly active, incredibly busy, undoubtedly incredibly stressed. Uh, but I think that uh, he, uh, he was at the top of his game at this particular moment. I want to get back to how he prepares those speeches
6: and whether the demands of the early days of the war were clearly so intense. Did that put an intolerable strain on his relationship with his staff around him?
7: He's got a sort of insatiable curiosity. He famously drank a lot. My name's Jean Seaton and I'm a professor of media history at the University of Westminster. In October 1941, there is a wonderful spoof memo which then does get sent to Clemy for from the poor, poor civil servants who he is driving to distraction. And it says, action this day, private office. So this is supposed to be Churchill. Pray let six new offices be fitted for my use. In Selfridges, Lambeth Palace, Stanmore, Tootingbeck, the Palladium and the Marland Road. I will inform you at six each evening at which office I shall dine, work and sleep. Accommodation will be required for Mrs Churchill... Two shorthand writers, three secretaries, and Nelson, the cat. There should be a shelter for all and a high place for me to watch air raids from the roof. This should be completed by Monday. There is to be no hammering during office hours between 7am and 3am. And then he goes on and it says, And I will need you know, quite good wine and I'll need some brandy while I'm batting. And some cigars. And that shows a spirit of pretty exasperated affection. But also a sense of people who were being pushed. And later, Clemie writes him one of those wonderful letters from a marriage in which she says, Look, actually, darling, you're pushing people and you are being brusque and bad-tempered and I would want those around you to love you.
4: We actually found Churchill very affable. I don't know whether... It was because, I know he wanted to have civilians working down here. I don't know how I found that out, but that was what he... Perhaps it made it feel more natural for him, because it must have been very tough with all those chiefs of staff and people who probably thought they could run the board better than he could. Joy Hunter. I and a group of women, we were all women, of course, uh, working in this particular office, were told to go downstairs. And I had absolutely no idea where downstairs was, because nobody knew anything. But then eventually we came down here and we were greeted by a door that was locked. We had to press a button and it was guarded by two Marines and realised, of course, as soon as we got down here really, that we were now in the hub where all the action was going on. George Street was the entrance. We came in through Great George Street for the offices of the War Cabinet and, um, of course, that's all seemed to be closed up now. Upstairs, it had been, oh, reports and committee procedure and going out and taking letters in code from the Russian section. But in actual fact, down here, it was much more immediate because I was in the Joint Planning Secretariat, which was uh, directly responsible for the plans for the invasion, of course, and troops. So we had all sorts of information like where all the different troops were stationed in the country. We knew where the Americans were and the free Poles and the free French. We knew what their movements were. We knew the date or the possible dates for D-Day depending on the tides and the moon. Um, so actually when it happened, I think I had a sort of feeling like a cork popping out of a champagne bottle with relief because there had been tremendous tension, as you could imagine. And then following the, the relief that it actually got going... Um, the horror of all the things that went wrong the casualties and the mistakes that were made and and of course we met Churchill frequently in the corridors because there was only one way in and he always spoke we would say good morning Mr Churchill or good morning Prime Minister and he'd always say good morning back whereas a lot of the other officers didn't even look at you And sometimes he'd stop and have a little chat. For instance, if there'd been a a raid in the night, um, was my where I lived was it all right? Were my family affected? Have we been bombed? You know, were we okay? Sometimes he'd say, "How do you think it's all going?" You know, he was a tremendous hero. Obviously, made a tremendous impression on everybody. And um, I mean, even then, and certainly looking back, I can see that really without him, we, we very nearly surrendered before we even started.
5: We shall never surrender.
6: We always think of rhetoric as something that can uplift and rather mask the reality, but in fact he he needed to establish his bona fides with the British public, I suspect, and, and the one way of doing that was t- to introduce a, a note of reality. Just how far, I'm so interested to hear, just how much the british people in mid-may 1940 knew that
1: they're in a fight for their lives well i think that to some extent they actually didn't quite realize the full seriousness of the situation and therefore that was part of churchill's job was to make people appreciate that i mean it's immensely touching
8: and i was in prague the other day and the ambassador invited me to go and see um, there's a statue of her, uh, there's a head of my grandfather in a, in, a, in a niche in the wall outside the British Embassy. There were quite a lot of people outside and there was a lady in deepest black wearing our husband's medals. She spoke perfect English. Absolutely looked me in the eye and said, you must understand how those words kept us going. Just those words.
4: I think Churchill's speeches. Is- were probably the nearest thing, in a way, to my being involved in war, because there was no doubt about it in my mind. Um, They they kept the civilians going, and the civilians, after all, in a war, often have greater casualties than the military do, especially if there's an air raid. The thousands can be lost in a night just like that without any warning. Uh, And that's a very devastating thing to happen in towns like Coventry and Birmingham and Liverpool and Manchester and Newcastle and Hull. uh, You know, if people have not been through that and heard these things whistling through or or seen places next door, going up, or going home, as some of the women did that I worked with, they'd go home at night and find the house had gone. You know, they'd come to work the next morning. And that's not easy. So I I think he played an absolutely vital part, as far as I'm concerned. The way he came over to me was as a bloke who held us all together.
0: Churchill, the great orator, in association with Universal Pictures' Darkest Hour.
2: He was a great lover of the English language and he knew how to use it. Yes. About it now. Because he oh, borrows from yes. Kipling here as well. Does he? Look, is. The fighting on the beaches. I'm just trying to quickly find. It's Jungle Book, where Kipling describes seals who fought in the breakers. They fought in the sand and they fought in the smooth, warm basalt rocks of the nurseries. And so Churchill takes that and reworks it.
6: Yes, he's a magpie for great language, isn't he? Yes, he's got great phrases. He's someone who's. Was... Listen out, store something up. Oh, I can recycle that, I
2: can use that later. Yes. I think one of the great achievements of the speech is, is that he's placing the citizens of Britain on a historic stage. So he, he comes back to kind of lines from Henry V and thinks, oh, arm yourselves and be ye men of valour. Um, so he's, he's placing the listener within a historical continuum of victories of course, arm yourselves and be, and be men of valour is Agincourt, a famous British victory. So what he's in essence doing is making everyone a Nelson or a Henry V or a Wellington. So I think this is, again, it is, it's, it's sublimely clever.
3: He was playing a role. I think he saw himself as the ultimate Bulwark of Western civilization, of the great empire. I don't think he invented these phrases, I think he very genuinely felt them. My name is Anne Seba, and I'm a historian and biographer of Churchill's mother, Jenny. If you look at his speeches, the number of times he refers to the word island, this great island. Now that's Shakespearean, a, a, you of know. Of course. It's a Shakespearean echo of John of Gaunt's, this sceptered isle. But he is trying to paint a word picture for his audience. And don't forget, they were only listening to him on the radio and many of his speeches in Parliament were not recorded simultaneously. So I, I think this belief in... Uh, The island mentality was very definitely something he felt and he needed by constant repetition to convey it to his audience.
2: You know, there's almost a kind of childlike enthusiasm and wonder and understanding of Britain's history, and it's a very (laughs) Churchillian understanding of Britain's history that he brings to the fore here, at just the right time.
6: Now, paint a picture for us of what the public was doing, how they were received. Presumably, this is a time, obviously before television, before certainly common television anyway, and... So people were camped around radio sets, they were sort of listening to them in pubs, in air raid shelters, what was what was, what was happening?
1: Uh, s- sometimes, yes. I mean it depends because not all of his speeches were broadcast and I think there's a sort of popular misconception that he was on practically every night of the war if you like and that every speech that he gave would have would have been recorded uh, and, and broadcast which was not the case. Um, probably the the most famous example of one where everybody would imagine it broadca- was broadcast but it wasn't is the fight them on the beaches speech where he gives it in the House of Commons and um, he uh, then you know, doesn't re- record it or broadcast it rather the newsreader that evening um, does, you know, reads out excerpts on the nine o'clock news bulletin. Um, and then Not quite ch- the same delivery. No, indeed not, Uh, although some people apparently did find it moving even in in that form. And so Churchill doesn't actually, of course, you you, you know the recording, but of course that recording wasn't made until 1949 when he was laying it down for the the purposes of posterity for, for gramophone records.
5: Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone.
4: There was air con of a sort, but it wasn't very good, and of course a lot of people smoked. Luckily, you could always tell when Churchill was in the building, because nobody quite smoked his his, um, type of cigar but there's a lot of cigarette smoking. And, of course, there was also um, electric light all the time, which is very tiring, and strip lighting, which is much worse than this, really. So it, it, I suppose they weren't the most comfortable of circumstances.
6: And here you've just pointed out a cigarette
2: lighter which looks like a... Well, it looks like a front doorbell. How does it work? You can see a light switch next to it or a, a button for a light. You press that and then that would um, heat up the element in here, and then that you could take a, a light for a cigarette from that. So it heats a coil, yeah. almost like a, as in a kettle or something,
6: and yeah. you press that, you heat up the coil, and then you press your cigarette to the electric coil. Indeed. And Indeed. that's to
2: prevent naked flames that's down? Exactly, exactly. Bearing in mind that we're near an awful lot of paper at the moment, because we're just coming into the map room. The dedication to tobacco in those yes. days, yes. no bounds. <laughs>
6: I'm looking at a green baize table around which maybe six or eight military officers might have been able to sit, and a large map of the world on the wall at the end.
2: All of these pins and pieces of string, these represent men and women who are fighting for Britain, not just from Britain, but also um, from the Empire. And Churchill was always acutely aware of the lives that were at stake here. Um, he was a very emotional man. And he knew what he was doing and the fact that some of his decisions might cost lives. There's that famous example early in the
6: war with the evacuation of Dunkirk, where he effectively sacrifices Calais to get the, to create a diversion. He knew that he was sending 4,000 men to their deaths, effectively.
2: Yes. There's an awful lot of humanity represented on that map as well. I mean, the, the, those sailors, uh, be they from the Merchant Navy or the Royal Navy, faced... A very unpleasant death were they to encounter the German U-boats, which terrified Churchill.
6: And there can be no greater enforcement of that responsibility than the surroundings in which we are. You couldn't have forgotten for one second the gravity of the situation that he was in. This wasn't just a place of military planning. Of course, it was a place where people were living their lives. No doubt, romances were formed here between the, the staff and close personal friendships, which may have endured decades after the war. And it's not just the tobacco and the fug of smoke, but people were living rationed lives. And I see here on the desk three cubes of sugar, which someone has clearly saved up from their ration. And so, James, when the door flew open and Churchill walked in... Would everyone
2: leap to attention and would they have absolutely yeah. thought, oh, gosh, i have got to be on the top of my game now? Absolutely. I think Churchill calls the flurry wherever he went. And if you look at the accounts of when um, he replaces Neville Chamberlain as prime minister, it's, it's some of them are just wonderful. And um, the sheer sense of energy and activity that Churchill brings to his office, but when he came in here again, you can be assured that everybody would have been on their guard. Right? You know, he'd have been asking for this, that. What's happening here? What's happening there? Um, always wanting to be in command of information.
6: And was there an edge of fear? Do you think that he
2: inculcated in his staff just around him that big presence? Um, I think fear is probably too strong a word. Yes, on occasion. Um, he did, he was prone to moods. He could um, be a tempered, a uh, hot-tempered could be, man. He could indeed be very hot-tempered. But I think the other thing that's interesting about him, he apologised afterwards. Um, and he, he would do it in front of people that he felt he might have humiliated. So th- he's a very warm individual, as well as sometimes somebody who might rather terrify you. This is the beating heart of the Cabinet War Room.
6: Well, the intimacy and community down here must have been very intense, spending so much time in, these, in this bunker and these narrow confines and the rooms down here. So it's no wonder that you either had to create a sense of real intensity, but also a bit of fun just from time to time just to get through the immense hours that you had to put in and such the seriousness just to relieve that for a moment.
4: And the only bit of sense of humour that I remember was really something when he invited a group of us to go to watch a film with him in one of these rooms down here that he'd got a sort of cinematograph thing set up and it was when we were doing a 24-hour shift from three in the afternoon till four the next afternoon and we'd been told we could we used to have a couple of hours in bed and so we were really looking forward to going to bed quite honestly but a few of us thought we would go and see this film And so we went into the room and sat down. I remember, I can't remember a lot of detail, but I know we seemed to sit for ages and, oh, you know, why am I doing this? And all of a sudden the door burst open. In he comes in his pyjamas and dressing gown with a cigar in one hand and a drink in the other and he shouts out, Winnie's here, let it roll. I can't remember what the film was about at all. No idea what the film was about. Um, But it was just, you know, he he was... um, I know you learn and you read about him and of course he had black moods and a terrible responsibility and I think he probably had a lot of opposition, very difficult people to deal with and the tremendous strain, pressure, uh, which perhaps at 18 and 19 you don't really realise. You you just uh, regard the man as a a hero and listen to every word he says.
6: He's so clear in that, he delivers such personal lines and and feelings to those who've clearly lost their their sons and daughters in these campaigns he he makes this very personal appeal to the house because of course the members around him have also lost sons he says the president of the board of trade sir andrew duncan is not here today his son has been killed and many in the house felt the pangs and affliction in the sharpest form he's appealing to those around him who he knows have suffered
7: and He's always appealing to the, the judgment of the house. He's always appealing to other people's judgment, not his own inviolable judgment. And that's a very good, you could say, rhetorical trick. It's a truthful thing
6: to get people to bring them in. to Yeah, to, it's to a truthful, it, but it's also you. a
7: truthful thing. If Parliament had turned against him, then he would have fallen. Um, and then he, I, 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 kind of, it's, it's, it's language which is not unlike. Um, Oddly, people think of it as being rhetorical. I just want to say, actually, it's brilliant, clear prose. That's what it is. The, the whole, whole root and root core, and, and, brain core of
5: and brain of the British army, on which and around which we were to build and are to build, the great British armies in the later years of the war seemed about to perish upon the field or be led into an ignominious and starving captivity.
7: What else do you need? The root core and brain? I mean, what, what, what you know, fingertips? I mean, you know, that it, it's a sort of amazingly vivid, it, it obeys an Orwell injunction, use simple, clear words, you know.
6: Absolutely. And he certainly does. And he takes people, he appeals to Parliament to stay with him in these early days and the people of Britain to stay with him. And then he signals victories to come, even though they were a long way away.
3: And for him, the idea of surrendering and fighting on was critical. It was critical because he was emotionally attached to it. He felt it viscerally almost that one absolutely could not surrender. But there was another important point in that. And and in that famous speech of fighting on the beaches and fighting on the landing grounds, people often forget the absolutely vital coda which is we shall never surrender because that was a message to America who had not yet joined in the war. America was still neutral. Churchill was desperate to get America to join in the war. He knew that was the way to win and he needed to show America and the world don't worry even if the French give in and sign an independent peace we will never surrender. We'll fight on alone but of course we hope that we won't have to that you'll join in.
5: It is not given to us to peer into the mysteries of the future. Still I avow my hope and faith, sure and inviolate, that in the days to come, the British and American people will for their own safety and for the good of all, walk together in majesty, in justice and in peace.
6: There is that extraordinary conclusion to the we shall fight on the beaches. I, I Just listening to it, even today, it, 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 the hairs on the back of one's neck stand up because he withdraws, you know, we shall fight on the beaches, on the landing grounds, in the streets, on the hills. You're getting sort of further and further inland. And then if necessary, if everything goes wrong we shall fight on the seas in, in on our empire, defended by our fleet, and then if that goes wrong then this the, the, the new world shall come to the rescue of the old and you really do. This is the most
3: important, I think the most important segment of many of his speeches. This island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving. Then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world. And if you listen to Churchill make that speech, he really gives the new world everything. All the emphasis of the speech goes into that. And he genuinely believed that if the worst happened and Hitler invaded and we were occupied by the Nazis, that it really would not be long before the new world came to the rescue of the old. Now, I think there are lots of things one needs to say about that, that coda, as, as I call it.
6: In the era that we are, it's impossible not to think of him as this titan, this almost God-sent figure who bore effortlessly the weight of the world on his shoulders and who also carried along a doubting nation with equal effortlessness. But I, I suspect that that wasn't the case, that at the time, both in his own mind and in the mind of the British people, there were far greater doubts.
5: And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire, beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time... The new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old When one thinks of the Second
2: World War and of debate in the House of Commons, it's Churchill's name that comes up regularly Hmm. as being the great orator. Change
6: of demeanour, both in the House, in the Palace, among the public, this backing suddenly, even as the situation gets worse and worse, because it's such a short time frame. He's made Prime Minister on May the 10th. Uh, he speaks for the first time three days later to the House, offering blood, toil, tears and sweat. And then it's that month, that month between May and June 1940, where the
8: whole thing is in the balance. You know, we might even sue for peace. You know, I'll tell you the other thing it makes. It makes these sort of, these rows and arguments we're having over Brexit. To be very, very small beer, when you consider what those people were dealing with at that time. I mean, we, this country was on the, really was on the edge of a precipice. Uh, and, and that's where I think, uh, I, I think the great rallying cry of my grandfather, really, it did play a very profound effect in steadying the nation. It, it did, steadying the nation is exactly what it did.
6: Churchill, The Great Orator, was presented by me, Harry de Ketville, and produced by Sue Bowerman. It was a Blanket production for The Telegraph.
0: To make sure you don't miss an episode of Churchill, The Great Orator, subscribe on iTunes or your preferred podcast host. And please do leave us a review.